I'm interested now in, in, in sort of this wider question around wellness and how we define success as societies almost in terms of not just GDP growth, our ability as individuals and as communities to be socially and economically and every other way productive, to be happy, to be well. These are goals that I think are worth researching, reflecting on, advocating for. Hello, I'm Professor Patrick Murray and I'm delighted to host this second series of the UCD School of Medicine podcast series, MGA Clinical Influencers. No doubt lots of our listeners are familiar with the MGA or Medical Graduates Association. For those of you who aren't, the MGA plays a vital role in keeping you, our School of Medicine graduates, in touch with fellow alumni across Ireland and around the world. The MGA is your organisation, offering you a lifelong partnership with the UCD School of Medicine. During this podcast series, graduates will bring us on a trip down memory lane, describing their time in UCD, and on some occasions in other schools of medicine, along with their experiences as junior doctors. They will discuss their specialty areas, highlighting some of the challenges they've encountered during their careers, and how they shared their expertise and helped coach others. On a personal level, they'll discuss how they manage a decent work-life balance, and will share recommendations for books, music, holidays, and other aspects of their lives. Our interviewees have compelling stories to share that will spark your curiosity about life and the clinical specialty they've chosen. First of all, I'd like to introduce myself. I'm a professor of clinical pharmacology at UCD and a consultant physician at the Madre Misericordia University Hospital in Dublin. I'm a 1988 graduate of the UCD School of Medicine and spent time in internship in Dublin and in residency in internal medicine in Minneapolis, followed by fellowship training at the University of Chicago, where I was a faculty member until I returned to Ireland in 2008 as the professor of clinical pharmacology in UCD, a consultant at the Matter. I've served as the clinical lead in the CRC at the Matter Hospital and served as the dean and head of the School of Medicine at UCD from December 2012 through June 2018. Today on our MGA podcast, I'm very pleased to be in conversation with Dr. Tony Houlihan, a 1991 graduate of the UCD School of Medicine. In his role as Ireland's Chief Medical Officer, Tony successfully led the country's national response to COVID-19, building public trust and ultimately helping to save lives. Since graduating from UCD and moving into public health, Tony has spent his career working to bring about meaningful change and long-term better health care for Irish people. Tony began to think more broadly about public health when, as a young doctor, a senior doctor introduced him to the field of clinical epidemiology. The experience inspired him to pursue a career in public health policy, guided by his innate sense of public service and his belief that optimal public well-being is a key to a just and equitable society. After GP training, he went on to complete a master's degree and a four-year training in public health before joining the Department of Health and Children in 2001 as Deputy CMO. He became CMO in 2008. Having stepped down as CMO in July 2022, today Tony combines speaking engagements with roles as a board member of the Irish Hospice Foundation and adjunct professor role in public health at the University College Dublin School of Public Health and as an advisor to several high-profile healthcare companies. Welcome, Tony. Look forward to speaking with you. Thank you very much, Pat. Can you go back to the beginning for us and tell us when you decided to become a doctor and why? I'd like to tell you that there was some lofty reason, to be honest. I had a, a certain understanding of what it might involve. When I think back on that, it was a very limited understanding. I had nobody in my family who was from a medical background, really. I just had some sense, I guess, from uh, 
stuff I saw on TV. We didn't have the internet in, internet in those days to be able to research things. We were going on very limited understanding for, for those of us who didn't have family members in, 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 the, in the discipline. And I guess I must have felt that in school terms, I was, it was something I was capable of, as it were, shooting at. And so I put it down, number one on my CAO, and I got in. It's no more interesting or lofty than that. What TV show was the, the current flavour <laughs> at the time? Was it something like Trapper John MD or one of these things, you know, so uh, all institutional based, all US based. I'm not sure that there was much in the way of medical drama, either in, in these islands, either Ireland or UK at the time, I don't recall. Something like that, you know. Uh, I didn't think too deeply about it, to be honest with you, Pat. There wasn't anything about, about Jon Snow and public health or anything? No, not at that stage. No, no, he was, he was a far-off uh, figure to be discovered at that point. And I did obviously get to know who he was, yeah. In the early years in UCD, you had some time in Belfield, probably on Earlsford Terrace early on? Yeah, just just first year here in, in, in uh, pre-med, uh, and then the rest of the time I spent in Earlsford Terrace. And in those days, and I'm not sure that it's all that different, it was pre-clinical completed before going into clinical work. So we, we spent most of four years in preclinical activity, only one of which is here in Belfield. And I, I think that's kind of interesting because it shapes your experience of university in, insofar as we're abstracted from the university proper and we're in Earth Terrace then for most of our, our time and then hospitals. So really out of a six-year medical school, university education, you really only spend one year, at least in those days, we only spent one year uh, on campus with the rest of, of, of the students. Have you been back around uh, Earlsford Terrace since you, you left? I have. Well, I went back there to do my master's in public health, which I did. In, I went back in full time in 95, 96, and the medical school was still in, and the public health faculty, therefore, was still in Earlsford Terrace in those days. Uh, and then I found myself at a concert some years ago in the National Concert Hall, and I've, I was down some corridor at the loo or something like that, and there was an open door, so I wandered through the open door long after the medical school had left to just have a quick wander around and see... It looked pretty much the same as I'd remembered, to be honest. Yeah, I'm told you can go into the anatomy lecture theatre and is that right? find your name carved there if you left it. <laughs> I don't remember carving my name, but yeah, I certainly remember it. But, uh, yeah, some, it's still there, apparently. Yeah, no, I can see the, you can see the building when you drive down Hatch Street. You can still see the, um, the old roof. Um, and, of course, the Ivy Gardens, which was our secret uh, uh, haunt. It was like this place that nobody else knew about. Uh, that we, we were able to access in the back of Earls, which has all opened up now and is the location for the Dublin Food Festival and various concerts I've been out there and so on and so forth. It's terrible that they've let everybody into it and that it's not exclusively retained for the medical school. The back of the Museum of Literature, I think, goes there now as well. What, what about Hartigans? We have to ask you about Hartigans. Oh, I think, I, yeah, I've, I was in there once or twice. Heard of, I've heard of it, yeah, I've heard of it, yeah. No, I certainly got to know Hartigans and got to know the family, a very decent family, and had one son of their own, I know, who's a... A graduate, I'm pretty sure, of UCD. He's, he's a surgeon. Uh, yes, but I remember the famous Alfie Mulligan and, and Evelyn. Yeah, and she was, the, she was the one who was really in charge. Yeah. It was, it was an institution in our time, and yeah, we were always, we were there pretty much every Friday night for a few years, yeah. We better go back to medicine, I suppose. Yeah. Uh, anyone in particular among your, your preclinical teachers who inspired you? Well, I came across somebody just uh, in, in, in my own, and, and it wasn't strictly in the context of UCD, it was, I did an extra elective in my final summer in surgery in Nina Hospital because I, I had a relative who worked there and it was not, I was living in, in Castle Troy in Limerick and it wasn't that far away. So I did a month's surgical elective there and went there as an enthusiastic young medical student hoping to do surgery. That's what, was interest, that's what I was interested in. 
and um, I came across a surgeon called uh, David McAvinci, who I don't know if you've ever heard of him, but he died quite recently. Uh, he died just about a month ago, unfortunately. Uh, but he was a surgeon there at the time, and he, he got me doing a piece of work in addition to the stuff that I was doing, the, 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 the standard stuff in the wards and, and theatre and so on, looking at uh, predictors for negative appendicectomy in people with presumed appendicitis portion of people who go to theatre with a presumed appendicitis end up with a normal appendix and they didn't have appendicitis to begin with. So what are the factors that influence that? Are there tests that might better help to diagnose pre-surgically, etc.? And it opened my mind up to the whole question of the fallibility or otherwise of tests and the importance of things like sensitivity and specificity and predictive value of tests and so on. And the mathematics of all of that really engaged me. I loved it. And it also gave me a sense of, you know, whereas, and I'm oversimplifying obviously, our medical teaching a lot of the time was, was about lists, learning the causes, the symptoms, the treatments, the complications, much more than it was really about teaching us how to think, whereas this was much more about teaching us how to think for ourselves, and how to problem solve and how to take evidence and apply it to a clinical problem and really think our way through that. And as medical students, that felt new to me at the time and really engaged me. And that's, you know, was my kind of... What year were you in at that stage? So I was going into final med. Yeah. I was going into fine, but it was the summer of 1990, and I qualified the summer of 91. So it was a year before I qualified. So I was still a student. And you'd, already, you'd probably already done your public health by then? Or? Uh, no, we'd done a little bit of public health. You did a tiny bit, at least back in, 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 back in those days, you did a tiny bit in pre-med yeah. as part of what was called social and behavioral sciences, which is kind of a mix and gather of psychology and psychiatry and sociology and public health. You got to think of one lecture in each one of those a month or something like that, which wasn't very much. And it all seemed a bit odd to us. We couldn't really understand it. We were just doing physics, chemistry, biology, and then this thing called social and behavioural science. And the connection between the two just we, seemed a bit elusive. Uh, we did public health then more properly in, in sort of fourth and final year. Um, but it was really that moment for me that kind of switched me off. Not switched me off, but, you know, gave me something new to think about other than surgery, which is at that time what I thought I was going to do. And so uh, after your time in Hospital Terrace, then you obviously rotated around various hospitals in, around the city. Uh, where, where did you do your most of your medicine, surgery, pediatrics, so, etc.? So I did medicine and surgery in Vincent's mm-hmm. and loved that. I mean, I can remember going in and resier around Easter time or so, having done all, pre, all the pre, pre-clinical subjects up to that point. And this really was where it felt like the rubber was hitting the road. Everything began to make sense and everything began to click into place. And I really loved that whole thing of, you know, the engagement with patients and just the, you know, I don't mind saying the excitement, the drama of being in the hospital environment and seeing how this stuff that we were learning in lecture theatres might apply itself to what we were seeing every day in the wards. Um, uh, And then I did my OBS in Hollow Street, my PEDS. We all did PEDS, I think, split between Crumlin and Temple Street equally, and my psychiatry was John of Gods, uh, and then back to Vincent's for 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 um, medicine and surgery and final med. But we did a month in the matter, so that there was, and again, I don't know how long that lasted, but we were part of a, if you like, a trial to to as it were infect us with with the other hospital. Um, so we spent a month over in the matter, and we, we lived in res actually for that month. And I, in, in my case, it was probably around February of final med. And we had a ball. I've never heard of that experiment. I didn't, Did you not? I don't know how long it went on. Probably not very long. <laughs> Maybe we were the disaster. I do remember one night, 
so we all stayed in res, that whatever. So we were in thirds, I think. So a third of the group from Vincent's at any given point in time was in the matter, staying in the res. And, um, and you know, there was one particular evening we were making a bit too much noise in somebody's room or something. There was a guitar involved and maybe a few cans of beer. And I can remember the night matron and the medical tutor coming along. And the medical tutor is a well-known, prominent medic, so I'm not going to say who it was. <laughs> but he'll be able to work it out. Um, and maybe that was the reason that the, if it was an experiment that ended prematurely, maybe that was the reason it ended, I can't recall. But, but it was really good, actually, because for us, what it meant was clinically, you know, we'd be wandering the wards in Final Med looking for somebody with a strange or unusual murmur. And we didn't have that profile of patients in Vincent's very often, whereas there were murmurs. Or the cardiac hospital. Yeah. Where, you know, so these kinds of basic clinical things were opened up for us then in the matter that maybe we didn't do easy access to in Vincent's. And maybe the same applied to people coming from the matter to uh, something like neurology or something, I don't know. And so there, was a, there definitely was a value in it. I'm we sure the statute it. of limitations is over for whatever <laughs> it was. So, yeah, I think we're okay. Um, did you have any time in, in general practice? As a student? As a student, no, two days. And the two days that I was allocated were allocated like right at the beginning of res year and happened to coincide with our house exams. So I didn't get to do them. So we had, we, they were not very significant exams, as my recollection back then in res year. At the end of res year, you did a medicine and surgery exam that amounted to something like 10% of your finals or something like that. But they were timetabled for the, the two days that I had allocated to some practice. So I never got out into general practice as a student at all when I was a medical student. And when you consider whatever the percentage is, 60, 70% of people end up in somewhere or other in general practice wholly or partly, you know, that's, that's, that's a pity. But Yeah, it's interesting, it's a common experience, as, as you say. Mm. Uh, obviously you came to graduation. What do you recall about the graduation day and the ceremony, etc.? I remember the sports hall um, and the, the seating being pulled out into the sports hall for that. Uh, we had a good group of friends that I'm still very much in close contact with and that day was one that was kind of shared between uh, us, uh, all of us and our families. Um, and in particular, I, I ended up marrying my then girlfriend, uh, who was a classmate, and so I remember sharing that day with her and her family. And so, yeah, I remember it was a nice, happy day. And uh, were you, with, with your, your future wife, were you a boyfriend and girlfriend for a long time? In, since, uh, since, yeah, since, um, early, since early in college, really, effectively since first met. And in my case, the interest developed towards the end of pre-med. And uh, she had a very close friend in school in, in uh, who was in our class also in college. The two of them were close friends, and I, I thought the, the wisest thing for me to do was to discuss this evolving feeling that I had with her best friend and swear her best friend to secrecy, which, of course, I discovered years later. She couldn't wait to get out and make the telephone call. But anyway, it shows you how naive I was in those matters back then. But anyway. And when did you get, when did you get married, ultimately? Got married in 95. We were 28, so we were, you know, we were finished. Our, we both did GP training programs in a different part of the country parts of the country at the same time so we got married in the summer after we completed those yeah and after after graduation did you were you able to have a trip somewhere or did you go straight to work no she and i went and tripped around cork and kerry those hadn't stayed in b&b's around west cork and kerry i mean when i think about it that felt exotic to us at the time but when i see what you know what my kids do and that generation do it's it, it feels it feels very pedestrian altogether. <laughs> no, their their, tri- the, their trips are much more exotic now. Uh, <laughs> and so then, where did you do your internship? So Vincent's, yeah, I did uh, twelve months in Vincent's. Started with um, Jim Fenley and the other two interns were Colin Doherty, who I've just mentioned, and uh, Siobhan Hutchinson, who's also a neurologist, and James is now. So the three of us were the interns at the time. 
And John McCaffrey, who you'll know from the matter, was the reg. He was a great guy who I knew from my days as a student. He was a he was a, he was one of those kinds of junior doctors when we came into the clinical arena of as students who kind of put an arm around us and took an interest in us and so on. And there weren't very many of those, and he was definitely one that I that, that I remember. Um, and Paula Calvert was the SHO. Jim Fenley was was the consultant, and he was at that time, you know, maybe not the only, but effectively the only. It was before. Des Carney's time, I think it probably was, um, effectively the only medical oncologist in the country. There weren't many, huh? no. No, it was really a new specialty at that point in time and in this country. But a good man. And uh, so that was my first three months. And then I worked with um, Brian Moore and, and uh, Peter Quigley, who were the two cardiologists. Uh, and Siobhan Hutchinson and I were the two interns. And we started working there on the day the cath lab opened. There was no cath lab in Vincent's up until that point, until the day we started as cardiology interns. And the job up to that point had been about uh, anybody who required catheterization had to go to James's for, 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 for diagnosis or whatever treatment might be needed. So you were organising patients to travel to, to James's, but that wasn't reality for us uh, because we had the cath lab open. Did you still think you were going to be a surgeon at the, at the, after six months uh, of internship I, in medicine? No, I, I was kind of moving away from the idea, to be honest with you, I mean, at this point. And, I, and I, was, I was now curious about the whole area of public health and how I might be able to, get, to follow that interest. Um, and uh, so I did, I, but I did surgery. I did three months of plastics, which was a kind of quiet enough job in Vincent's. And then three months with a guy called J.J. Murphy, who was a bit of a character in, in those days in Vincent's but a great surgeon to work with uh, because he gave, us, he gave us lots of responsibility and encouraged you if you wanted to take on responsibility. So it did give me, you know, pause for thought, but I, uh, but I, I, I had at this stage really wanted to embark on whatever I understood to be a career in public health and I had talked to a few people about how you might best do that and understood that there was a public health master's, there was a training programme under the College of Physicians in public health and that that's the route that I wanted to go. And I figured by doing a GP training scheme, I'd give myself good, broad exposure to the health service. So that was part of the reason why I did that. So that was already your plan then? You were doing it with a view to yeah. going into public yeah. health? I mean, it didn't bind me, obviously, but, but that, was, that was my intention. And, um, uh, and if I needed any reinforcing, I spent a year working in rural general practice in my trainee year, which kind of really, if there, was any, if there was any semblance of interest in a future career in general practice, that probably extinguished it. Wonderful people, lovely part of the country, all of that, but... Life for a rural GP is very difficult. It's a tough life. Yeah. It is. And, and you see it now in the numbers of people who, who, who are choosing effectively to not do that. People just don't take on that responsibility. I think that the same issues arising in veterinary medicine and in lots of other disciplines. Particularly shorthanded, yeah. It's, mm. uh, it's, it's, it's a tough life. It is a tough life. Even if things like rotas and co-ops have all helped, it's still a tough life. Uh, and so by the end of that GP training programme, which I finished in the summer of 95, I'd already been accepted back onto the... Uh, master's in public health program the following academic year. So I, I became a full-time student again for a year at the end of that. And, and in doing that, uh, must have been such a lifestyle change. Did you discover you really liked uh, being back in lectures, oh, did doing research projects? I did, and it, it, was, it was a taught master's with a dissertation, so, uh, but I, and a lot of different subjects in epidemiology and statistics all the way through to health management and... Uh, 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 a range of other related disciplines, sociology, did quite a bit of medical sociology and uh, health economics, and these were all new disciplines to me. In effect, we'd, we'd been given very little exposure to any of this as medical students. 
and I just loved it. I lapped it up. I really did love that. And uh, and when you go back to college as a 28-year-old, and I found myself in a situation I was now married, and Emer was effectively funding all of this, um, it concentrates your mind uh, on, you know, focusing on the study and engaging and trying to make the most out of it and so on. You feel like you're doing it much more as a kind of a real career choice. I think when you go into medical school at the age of 18, you're much, much younger. I was 10 years older at this point in time. So, um, yeah, so I loved it, engaged, engaged with it fully. The following year, just as a, just as a, in, in, in perfect symmetry, Emer then did the Masters in Public Health the following year and, and I funded that. So, paid her back. <laughs> mm. And, and did you both see a, a way forward in terms of career structure once you got the MPH? Did there was a lot happening at that time in terms of uh, moving away from, if you're familiar with it, there was an old model of the Director of Community Care Medical Officer of Health at the level of each county, in effect, uh, that was then replaced by the establishment of these so-called Departments of Public Health in each of the old health boards. And that became the kind of locus of employment for those out in, as it were, practice in public health, public health epidemiology, etc., or there was also then a career option around academic public health. Most of the universities had an academic department uh, and there was also the Department of Health and maybe one or two small agencies at a national level where there were potential career options. But I wasn't so worried about... I was. This is what really interested me. Uh, I was really interested in the policy end of it. I didn't necessarily believe that I'd end up in that right away. But, but I figured that if I was doing something that interested me and I was enthusiastic about it and doing my best to be as good as I could be in it, that career stuff would kind of work itself out that was whether I'm right or wrong about that now it's another matter but and what was the tradition at that time in, in terms of did, did people keep doing some general practice at the same time or was it more medical officer duties that uh, took over it was a mixture because not everybody at the time there was quite a bit of competition to get onto the, the, the structured four-year training program when in fact it was a three-year training program at that point in time in public health under the cover under the ICHMT the same as cardiology or or, or endocrinology or whatever other specialty you, you care to mention. Um, and uh, with uh, a membership, which at that time you had to have part one of the membership as a requirement for application onto the programme. Um, and then obviously you do your part two as a thesis, uh, research-based thesis, uh, over the course of your four-year training programme. So that's the route that I chose. But quite a few people don't choose that route and they, they would have stayed. It's much less common now, perhaps, but they would have stayed in, in medical officer of health type functions in things like child health clinics, that sort of stuff. So I think that's a, that's a good segue to how did all that prepare you for uh, adversity in your professional career? Um, it did or didn't. Uh, I, I think the thing that gives you, that prepares you for adversity is the exposure and experience of it. And that like when you, when you experience it, you learn from it. Hopefully you learn from it and you figure out ways of either hopefully preventing or learning better how to deal with adversity when it comes along, whether that's professional or personal. Um, But uh, I think there's no, there's no training or training program that can give you, if you like, the means of dealing with these things and the way that experience of these things that when, when adversity comes along. Um, uh, and in, in whatever form it comes. And in terms of uh, the, the, the legacy of getting into research, which obviously pulled you into the area to some degree early on, um, what kind of research excites you these days? One thing that's always interested me, I wouldn't say more than primary research, and I have been interested in primary research, but I haven't done a huge amount myself, is the question of, like, the, the getting research into practice question. 
and how we can and and the sense of obligation I think that exists around ensuring that when we do develop new knowledge and whether that's clinical or public health or whatever we're talking about, the obligation that exists on us to try to ensure that that translates properly and effectively into practice and that people can really benefit from that. And I think we all know, and I'm sure you know far better than I do, plenty of examples in your own clinical sphere of things that are known, that have been established sometimes for long periods of time and yet don't reach, if you like, uh, and, and what are the reasons behind that? And that in itself is a research question that has always kind of interested me. I mean, I, I toyed a little bit with the whole area of evidence-based medicine I did a bit of teaching in that when I was at, at a young age. Um, and that was one of the questions that always interested me, was how you can ensure that we have effective means of channeling, if you like, new knowledge that's, that's good, worthwhile findings that have a potential to improve either clinical care, a potential to improve public health outcomes, whatever they may be, and ensuring that that's implemented and the things that are not effective, the things that we learn are not effective or harmful, that we stop doing those. And you get into all sorts of questions around systemic questions about the organisation and functioning of healthcare systems and all of that kind of stuff in, in trying to understand those kinds of questions. Um, and that's what's always interested me. There's very, well, it's changed, I think, but, there's, but there's, there's far less emphasis on that kind of research. That like there's, there's substantially, substantially greater priority given to research that happens in a laboratory than research that's much more about how you apply those findings ultimately at the other end of the chain. In many ways, those questions are just as legitimate, but, but they're, they're not as, as... I think people do, yeah, they forget about the end of the spectrum, which is mm. you certainly need regulatory approvals for innovations and you've got to do your phase one, two, three. Yep. You've got to do your phase four work uh, to fill gaps. Mm-hmm. You've got implementation to, to make things happen. But yeah, the, the downstream thing of ultimately, if you don't affect public health in the broader sense... Uh, your innovation hasn't really done anything. Yes, exactly. Um, but uh, I think, I suppose, because it's not required to get approval for things, I think people forget about that part. They forget about it. But I don't know if you ever heard of, in, and we would have heard about it in public health terms, the, uh, the rule of halves, which is one of these, with these, kind of, these uh, rules of thumb, if you like. That's a, if you take a given chronic disease, diabetes, for example, that about half the people with that disease in a given population have been identified as having at that. The other half have not. And if you take the half that have been identified, about half of those are on appropriate treatment. And if you take the half that are on appropriate treatment, about half of them are controlled in that approach. So insofar as there's research evidence in Ireland, it suggests it might not even be as good as that for some of the common chronic diseases. Uh, and it just shows you the difficulty in translating. So if we have knowledge around, let's say, what effectively constitutes control therapeutically with a given agent for a particular disease, how can it only be applied to one-eighth of the people? How can it only be in a situation where one-eighth of the potential population is benefiting from that? So you have to start to focus then. If you're thinking about therapeutic efficacy and effectiveness at the population level, you start to think about early diagnosis and you start to think about screening and you start to think about barriers of access to service and all of those kinds of things as all contributing to that rule of half. It's, uh, it's certainly going to dominate uh, the approach to structuring the health system in Ireland now by the looks of it. What progress we're making, you know, as a society in terms of improving lifestyle-related risk factors or social socioeconomic risk factors for ill health uh, in, in, in terms of reducing, let's say, the absolute risk of a given disease for an individual over their lifetime. The sheer weight of numbers, we just have more and more people who are in the age groups where the risks related to those chronic diseases are, are, are much greater. So the ageing of the population alone is going to outdo any improvement that we're making in terms of reducing the absolute risk for individuals over their life course of picking up a given disease, which means that Rates might improve, but the numbers are going to continue to increase. 
uh, and that we have to start to think much more about all those kinds of questions about how we pick diseases up earlier, how we encourage people in the first instance to take responsibility for and control over their own health and influence their own risk factors around ill health. And don't become patients, don't become, in economic terms, don't become our customers, never become our customers, and actually retain their health for the purpose of their own economic and social productivity and happiness and well-being, and never have to come near us. That's <laughs> a good goal. I'm going to take you sure. out of work a little bit now. Um, uh, over the years, and I guess this changes in different phases, but what kind of things have you done to maintain some work-life balance over time? A number of different things. I mean, we've all done the kind of thing. We've gone and had a few pints with our mates at the end of a week. Certainly, when I think about like my time as a junior doctor and say how busy it was as interns, if I just use that as an example, there was the cohort effect. We were all in the same place at the same time. It didn't feel unusual, but actually we were working really incredibly hard hours, long hours, I should say. And at that age in our lives, you know, going out at night and going to nightclubs and still making it to ward rounds at seven o'clock the following morning and so on. You know, so I'm not advocating that as a lifestyle, but so, you know, uh, I'm not going to pretend we've all lived, that I've lived um, perfectly in terms of doing the kinds of things that are always good for my, good for my own health in terms of uh, extracurricular activities. But as I got older, uh, I got into things. I, I, I spent about 10 years coaching GA, so that was always a good, um, a good grounding for me. So no matter where I felt I was in my own career in terms of authority or whatever level of responsibility I had, being on a pitch with a bunch of 10-year-olds is a great leveller. They don't give a monkeys who you are, what you've got. It's It all relates to the moment and their relationship with you, and it is a good leveller. I did a good bit of that. Um, I did uh, a stint on the boards of my kids, my, uh, two kids, their schools, a primary school and a secondary school, on the boards of management for a number of years, which was good. Um, I And then I engaged quite a bit with music. I I play a bit of guitar. I'm not that good. I, I took up in my 40s, which, you know, I'll, you'll never be good, really, but good enough to just entertain myself and go to a lot of gigs. And those would be the kind of main things. Are you a singer? No. <laughs> no, no. And I find the thing of, uh, if, you, if you play any instrument, the thing, of, the thing of playing guitar and singing at the same time, it's like, you know, it all comes crashing down. In my case, meeting the two of those things, keeping the two of those things together, I find that difficult. Are we going to see you on Dancing with the Stars? I, you're certainly not going to see me on Dancing with the Stars. I mean, just joking aside, I mean, I was always fairly clear in my own view. Like, I found myself in a public, in a role that had a public profile through simply being in a job. But I always felt that it was very important in the way that we did those jobs, any of us, that we stayed on the right side of the line of professional that we weren't celebrities and that we didn't sort of engage in activities that were celebrity in nature, no matter what the press and someone might have been saying. So no, Dancing with the Stars is definitely, that's, that's on the other side of that line. I mean, I wouldn't want to inflict it on anybody either, my, my dancing. <laughs> uh, what are you reading at the moment? I'm actually reading, would you believe it, I'm reading a book called Night Interns, which is written by a colleague of yours in the matter called Austin Duffy. Uh, Austin did Grand Rounds this morning. Are you serious? Yeah. yeah, I'm literally halfway through the book and uh, it was somebody and I'd, I'd heard something about the book uh, and actually it was John McCaffrey who, who I happened to be talking to about six weeks ago had mentioned it because he had read it but at that point I'd already been given a copy of it by somebody that I knew just thought, oh, I think you might find this book interesting and I kind of put it away and then I, I met John he mentioned it and so I picked it up and a couple of days ago and I started reading it and it is so relatable I mean, my God so relatable. It's amazing. I'm going to have to read that. It's, it's, it's not even his first book, I think. No, it's not his first book. And I haven't read anything else of his. 
Um, uh, but yeah, like he's a great writer. Clearly, he's a great writer. And um, but like he, he, he—it's the way he deals with. He, he's dealing with the internship, and he's in James. Is clearly, if you know the anatomy, and you'll know, I'm sure, he's talking about the hospitals and moving around and how they're going from ward to ward and their interactions with the nurses and all that kind of stuff. It's, it's really relatable. It's, like, it's just, you know, I, I don't know what it would be to a wider audience, but like to somebody who's been through the experience, albeit 30 years ago, it feels just, Jesus, this is, he's, he's writing about me. You just, you, just, you just added one to my list. That's good. Uh, what about um, holidays? Do you have any recommendations for anywhere that you've really liked and would recommend other people to go to? Yeah, I, was, I had a short trip recently to a place that maybe not a lot of Irish people would know, in, because we know France well, but I was in a place called Annecy, or Annecy, to pronounce it correctly, which is in eastern France, about 50 kilometres south of Geneva, and a beautiful place and uh, on a lake. I had been there in a, in a little village on the lake many years ago doing a three-week residential course in interventional epidemiology, a European course in a chateau that was donated to the French government by the Murray Foundation, as in uh, the Murray family, I should say, as in Pastor Murray. And it's, 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 it's used exclusively for the purpose of teaching infectious disease to public health organisations of one kind or another. But it's in a beautiful location, and I always meant to go back there at some point, and so I got to go back again. And since I've been out of work I've, in, in the summer since I've left my previous job, I've, I've managed to have a couple of trips. I was cycling in France in September and... Uh, I was in Connemara and um, in August, and but honestly, it was really a really beautiful place. Unhesitatingly recommend. So you, um, you still think a lot about pandemics and preparedness, and still a focus of yours going going into the future. Uh, well, I'm still interested in public health, um, and I'm still interested in being involved in some way in things that interest me. If I, if I put it in those terms, I have a lot more control now with the things that I get involved in. And I'm seeking to be, if you like, judicious about how I exercise that control. Um, what I'm not going to be doing, and I've been clear about this, I'm not going to be trying to do my old job from some new location. I mean, I didn't have to leave my old job. I chose to, to do that myself. Uh, and because I've become much more interested now in things that relate to, uh, like I've spent 20 years working at a senior level in in government, in effect, trying to influence health and in, in, in a broad sense. Uh, through the work that I did and, and got wonderful opportunities to be involved in lots of different things. But I'm interested now in, in, in sort of this wider question around wellness and how we define success as societies almost uh, in terms of not just GDP growth and this kind of continuous, and, and we know it to be unsustainable if anyone thinks about it, this continuous quest for, for growth for its own sake without some emphasis on what we're trying to achieve in terms of the functioning of our societies, our ability as individuals and as communities to be socially and economically and every other way productive, to be happy, to be well. These are, these are goals that I think are worth um, researching, reflecting on, advocating for, contributing to policy on and so on. And so in some way, these are the things that, that interest me and much more focus on that upstream I mean, I have a simple, a very simple way of characterising my own career journey. I left clinical medicine, as I've explained to you, at a young age in, my, in career terms, and I went upstream uh, of where I was, like the analogy of the, the person who spends their time fishing people out of the river. At some point, you've got to walk upstream and say, why are all these people ending up in the river? Uh, and I'm, I, I, in my own mind, I feel I've reached another crossroads where I want to spend my time now going a little further. 
and seeing that those wider questions around the relationship between societies, economic, health, well-being, and how all those things are mutually reinforced and how, in global terms, the, the challenges that mankind is facing and that we see being expressed in, 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 in health terms, uh, in terms of chronic disease and infectious diseases and the changes that are happening with those re- uh, on a worldwide basis are equally the same kinds of things that are manifested in educational outcomes or equity outcomes in, in, in other sectors. So things like climate change and sustainability, water and energy distribution and the security issues that go with all of that are going to shape well-being and health experiences of populations right around the world. It sounds like, I mean, having gone through that journey, I mean, you've, you now have the time to ask your own questions. Yeah. And uh, if, if the agenda is about wellness and, mm. and developing that for, for the population. No, that's precisely it. And that's precisely it. And so that it will be a lit, at least a part of the focus of the work that I'm doing here in, uh, in UCD. There's wonderful work, and I'm sure you're aware, going on here in the whole area of One Health which is an applied area of asking about the interrelationship between human health, animal health, environmental health, agricultural health generally, and how they interrelate with one another. And that's like a microcosm of the interest I was just describing to you there, how all these different experiences that we have as peoples are influencing the thing that interests you and I, which is health and well-being, that in some way or another we have to seek to try to influence them in some way. Have you, have you ever thought about trying to influence from the... The broader government side. You ever thought about politics? <laughs> no, no. And I've been up close with politics for twenty years, and uh, I have a lot of admiration for individual politicians. I think, in ways that I think they don't get credit for, the personal sacrifice that's involved in committing yourself wholly to public life is not acknowledged. You you, you give yourself away completely. Uh, there is no kind of space into which the public or whatever form of the public, whether it's social media or, or, or the media generally, sees as being off bounds. It might be a little bit better in this country than maybe some other countries, but there's been a trend here for the last 20 years, which I think is evident to anybody who's been close, that that's, that's just gotten worse. And the advent of social media has made that much more challenging. There's a little bit of you that would say, like, why would anybody do it? Anybody with prospects of success or so I think there are good people in politics who've who've committed themselves to it for good genuine altruistic reasons it's a very difficult life uh, and a hard life um, uh, and I think you know personal view I think that uh, the nature of our political systems in this part of the world is bringing us and there's a trend which is almost evident in particularly this kind of social media age when there are more and more career politicians, people who go into politics to be politicians who haven't had other careers, um, which uh, means that staying elected becomes the, the order of the day and, and, and encourages much more populism than might otherwise be the case, I think. Um, and uh, I'm not sure where all that's going to end, to be honest. Sounds like for what you want to achieve, uh, some academic freedom and some time yeah. to think about what you want to do. Yeah. And away from that world, yeah. Have you put together a bucket list? And do you want to share anything on it? <laughs> no, I no, I don't have a bucket list, to be honest, uh, as such. But I have things that I want to do, and want, and I've, I've detailed a little of it. And even if the way I'm describing the kinds of things that interest me, I'm not offering you concrete descriptions of what I'm going to be doing. I'm simply outlining, look, I'm interested in these things, and I'm going to expose myself because I now have the time to do more of that. My ambition at the moment is to spend more time with my kids. I mean, as much as... 
20 and 21 year old will allow you to spend with them I mean since it's the limit I, I accept but being able to spend time with them um, my wife Emer who I've mentioned died uh, about 18 months ago uh, and so now I'm a sole parent and I'm very sorry for your loss thank you thank you Patrick but uh, the two kids one of them is here in UCD um, doing actuarial studies my son and my daughter's in Trinity doing physiotherapy and they're both living at home and you know anybody with university students living at home know that their primary objective is to impoverish you and to uh, um, make sure that you're cooking their meals and ironing their clothes and all. so I want to do so uh, to not envy the dishwasher uh, that exactly <laughs> it's not just my house I, I do want to have time to spend on some of those kinds of activities I am interested in a little more travel I am interested in doing some work, you know, in a formal way, potentially with WHO and other organisations. I'm just back from Copenhagen a few days ago with meeting with the WHO in Europe, which I'm hoping might lead on to some work at, uh, that interests me in, in the area that I've just been talking about. And, and so just taking the time to be able to spend on some of those things um, and maybe to get a little bit better at guitar as well. That's What kind of guitar do you uh, play? Oh, just an acoustic guitar. Just a, yeah. I mean, you know, what kind of genre of music? So, oh, very middle of the road, singer songwriter rock. We're going to have to get a re- no, recording of that for the website. That, that'll never happen. <laughs> well, I was going to finish by asking you, what would you advise if you could speak to your 24-year-old self? And if it's a career in rock and roll, I guess uh, that's one answer. But any other thoughts of what you might have suggested? I think at that age, my advice would be the advice I give to my own kids: really follow your own heart and 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 follow what you think is going to make you happy. That I think is the is I think that's the one kind of outcome that that I think that you should be seeking to, because the, you, you know when you when I kind of look at it in these terms that if you think about the currencies for life and for living, we have time, we have money, and we have energy, and our energy is related to our health, and if we can do our best to maintain our health. Time is the one that we run out of. Uh, money is, I'm not saying easy to come by, but, but it's not the absolute determinant. If you don't have time, you know, all the money in the world is of little value to you. If you don't have your health, it's of little value to you. So you really want to try and spend your, your, your time on things that are going to make you happy and fulfilled. And, and I'd be saying to my 24, just, you know, follow your instinct about what's going to make you happy and f- fulfilled. And, and, and it's interesting uh, in that regard. I mean, there's a bit of a conflict with time, but... Uh, just like you did yourself, I mean, extending your training or education sometimes is worth the investment, right? It, it, not, you don't have to be in a rush to be done with all that. You no, know, exactly. And and, and I, having similar sort of conversations with my own kids, you could, it can all feel like at a young age that I need to get moved on and I need to get into the workplace and so on. But yeah, taking the time to invest in further education and further personal as well as professional development at a young age and, and getting yourself grounded and getting to know who you are as an individual, almost irrespective of what career you choose, and being able to have a solid platform that you stand on yourself to be able to then feel the self-confidence or whatever it is to be able to do with your formal training and teaching and education the best that you can do. I, I think that's what, what, what you should focus on. And as you say, to not be in a rush, to be completed and to get these things over and done with. There's plenty of time for work. Exactly. And... Uh I must say, I've enjoyed talking to you. I, As have I, yeah. I thought it was um, very revealing um, in, in many ways. Uh, and all, a lot of these conversations are. I, I think it's a, it's a useful thing to talk to our alumni, uh, see, see what their thinking is about the, their lives so far, but also what they want to do. 
And I know everybody is uh, very, very proud of you and the work you did during this difficult uh, pandemic period. We're all looking forward to see what you do with your next chapter. Okay. It sounds like you've got great plans. So thanks for spending time with no, us. And thank you very much indeed, Patrick. Thanks very much. Enjoyed it. Thank you.